the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. He did not receive a pink slip today, as others did elsewhere. James Blind is producing, and we're glad to have you with us. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Mark Morano. He is the author of Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with John Malcolm. He's the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government, the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. In light of um, the planned walkout tomorrow in some schools across the country, we're going to talk about uh, what Congress is offering in terms of proposals. Proposals uh, to increase school safety. We're also going to talk with Timothy Dosher. He is an associate director of the Coalition Relations at the Institute for Economic Freedom, and we're going to talk about the president's tariffs. Uh, contrast that with the economic boom we're currently experiencing, and do the two fit together make sense? And what exactly is a tariff, and why are so many suggesting it's a bad idea? So we'll get into all of that uh, today on the program. Well, a key cabinet official was canned. Another was uh, promoted. One of the president's closest aides was escorted from the White House uh, today in one of the busiest and most chaotic days of the Trump administration. And that's saying something for this uh, this administration. It all started when President Donald Trump unceremoniously fired his embattled secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, in an unexpected morning tweet and announced he was uh, giving Tillerson uh, Tillerson's job, rather, to CIA director Mike Pompeo. Now, there's some uh, debate over whether or not he learned of his firing from the tweet because the administration is saying that he was uh, in a conversation, and I don't remember who the cabinet member was at this moment, but a cabinet member informed him on Friday while he was abroad that this was coming. He actually returned home sooner because he wanted that announcement to be made while he was at home rather than here. Uh, so the tweet did come out, and maybe Tillerson didn't know what day or under what circumstance, but it was a rather uh, unceremonious and perhaps humiliating dismissal that was made public today. Uh, in the, the tweet that uh, most people learned about his uh, uh, removal uh, from, a tweet, uh, or rather Trump named Gina Haspel, Pompeo's deputy at the spy agency, to be the new director of the CIA. Then a few hours later, a top Tillerson aide, Steve Goldstein, lost his job at the State Department after issuing a statement about how Tillerson didn't understand why he was being fired. And all of the chaos, though, Trump is expressing confidence that the change will be positive for his administration, and one can only hope for the country. Uh, I'm really at this point where we're um, getting very close to having the cabinet and other things that I want, Trump told reporters at the White House. Well, a senior White House official told Fox News the president decided to swap out Tillerson for Pompeo ahead of his uh, coming meeting with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. And I should mention that Pompeo was responsible in large measure for the rather harsh tone of the administration to Kim Jong-un so that he's not new to that whole 
um, face-off. Speaking to reporters before leaving for California, the president acknowledged he and Tillerson have had some disagreements. The president said that he and Pompeo have a similar thought process. We got along actually quite well, but we disagree on things, Trump said of Tillerson. Uh, When you look at the Iran deal, I think uh, it's terrible. I guess he felt it was okay. Uh, So we are not really thinking the same, end quote. Well, the president praised Pompeo for his tremendous energy, tremendous intellect. We're always on the same wavelength, he said, and the relationship has always been very good. That's what I need as Secretary of State, end quote. Well, Tillerson, the former chief executive of ExxonMobil, was tapped as Trump's first Secretary of State, but the two have clashed over foreign policy strategies over the last year. A White House source says that the chief of staff, John Kelly, called Tillerson Friday to tell him that Trump wanted to uh, I wanted him to step aside. Tillerson, the source said, asked if Trump would wait for him to get back from his trip to Africa. And again, that conversation took place while he was doing his job in Africa. And uh, as I couldn't recall a moment ago, it was the chief of staff, John Kelly, who uh, engaged him in that telephone call, telling him that he was going to be let go. Tillerson returned to the United States on Tuesday morning. Trump pulled the trigger on his um, Firing Uh, during remarks at the State Department uh, this afternoon, Tillerson said Trump called him a little after noontime from Air Force One several hours after he was fired. What's most important is to ensure an orderly and smooth transition during a time that the country continues to face significant policy and national security challenges. He said his voice uh, cracking and shaking just a bit. Goldstein, a State Department spokesman, said in a statement that Tillerson did not speak to Trump before he was fired and was not sure why he was being dismissed. And that's a true statement. He apparently spoke to um, Tillerson, spoke to Chief of Staff John Kelly before being fired, told that he was going to be fired. But the president did not speak to Tillerson until a couple of hours, apparently, after that firing was made public. The secretary did not speak to the president this morning and is unaware of the reason. But he is grateful for the opportunity to serve and still believes strongly that public service is a noble calling and not to be regretted. Uh, Trump also said Tuesday he is nominating Gina Hospel as the new director of the CIA. Hospel was, uh, has served as Pompeo's deputy and would become the first woman to serve as director, although that will not be uh, much made of given the fact that she is in a Trump administration. I am grateful to President Trump for the opportunity and humbled by his confidence in me, she said, to be nominated to be the next director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Haspel is a seasoned spy master. She has uh, avoided the limelight during her 32-year career that's included stents running overseas black sites where dangerous terrorists were waterboarded. That may be an issue when she goes through the confirmation process. And while she's won praise from Washington insiders, including uh, Obama Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and former CIA director uh, Michael Hayden. She will uh, face questions on the Hill about her connection to sites where waterboarding took place. It was called for by the president at the time, George W. Bush, uh, but nonetheless, she was involved. Meanwhile, back at the White House, um, uh, McKinty, uh, Trump's longtime so-called body man uh, on Tuesday was moved to a position at Trump's 2020 campaign, but was seen uh, being escorted out of the White House. Not sure what the story is there, but again, moving from the position in the White House to his 2020 campaign which I guess is beginning. Well, the Wall Street Journal first reported that McKinty's depart- uh, reported on his departure, citing an unspecified security issue. CNN reported that he was under investigation by the Department of Homeland Security for financial crimes. The Secret Service offered no comment when asked to confirm that report. Sources also say that security clearance was not the issue. So what uh, the issue is, we may or may not uh, become privy to at some point 
in the future. President uh, Donald Trump's choice uh, for the first CIA director um, will be somewhat uh, controversial, as I mentioned, and we'll talk more about that. Um, as uh, she worked in uh, black ops, uh, where waterboarding and other forms of torture were apparently approved under the administration of George W. Bush. There's already discussion about whether or not uh, members of the Senate are prepared to approve her or whether or not they will require that some sort of commitment be made that uh, if uh, put in a position once again in which uh, there are questions about the appropriateness of torture, she would make some sort of commitment that she would not uh, be willing to authorize or um, permit others to engage in that kind of activity. So it'll be interesting to see what happens during that confirmation. 15 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency and Zero Res. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Mark Morano. He is the uh, author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. He'll be joining us in our next two segments. Well, polls have opened and maybe even closed by now in Pennsylvania, kicking off the first special election of 2018. It's rather peculiar because it's a, a congressional district that will no longer exist in a relatively short period of time. So it may or may not tell us much about what to expect in the November 2018 election, but much is being made of this uh, face-off. Republican Rick Saccone and Democrat Connor Lamb are battling for the congressional seat in what has been a very tight race. Democrats are hoping to stir up enough enthusiasm in the special election, especially among union members, to increase voter turnout and change the party representing the district that has recently been red. Now, the one fact that has remained the same this year, whether Democrats have won or lost recent special elections, is Democrats are doing better in terms of turnout and enthusiasm. That's a quote from a social science professor at Clarion University reflecting on Pennsylvania's special election. A February Monmouth University poll had Lamb trailing Saccone by only three points, but a recent Emerson College survey found Lamb leading by three points. The congressional seat opened after Republican Representative Tim Murphy, who was staunchly pro-life, resigned in 2017 amid reports that he asked his girlfriend, he's apparently married, to get an abortion when he believed she was pregnant. As voters head to the polls for the March 13th special election, a look at the candidates and what uh, what's unique about the district is uh, has been the preoccupation of many talking heads throughout the day. Well, uh, Pennsylvania Rep- State Representative Rick Saccone has gotten the support of President Trump in the special House election, and uh, a lot is riding on whether or not the president can influence the outcome in a state uh, that he uh, dominated in the November election, but may not be able to hold on to. He's a longtime state representative. Uh, Rick Saccone is 60. He's a conservative Republican who uh, more embodies the policies of President Trump. Saccone is more known for his religious uh, conservatism as opposed to Murphy, who is a more mainstream Republican. Robert Spiel is associate professor of political science at Pennsylvania State University in Erie. Uh, He was one of the lawmakers who championed Pennsylvania's Castle Doctrine or Stand Your Ground Law, which allows law-abiding people to protect themselves, their families, and others from intruders and attackers without fear of prosecution or civil action for acting in defense of themselves and others. Saccone also sponsored a bill that would require public school buildings to bear the motto, In God We Trust. Additionally, he pushed for a national fast day in the state to mirror President Lincoln's proclamation of a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Saccone is a retired Air Force officer with vast experience in counterterrorism 
counterterrorism efforts, including working to uh, uh, on task forces rather uh, f- for two Olympic Games, according to his campaign website. Uh, Trump again traveled to Western Pennsylvania the weekend uh, before the election, urging voters to elect Saccone to advance the White House agenda, saying we need our Congressman Saccone. Well, aside from Trump, he has had um, uh, also received support from Vice President Mike Pence and Ivanka, the president's daughter and advisor. But not all Republicans are happy with him. Politico reported that just before the election, strategists and national GOP officials described him as the publication as deep, uh, deeply underwhelming as a candidate and complained about his fundraising ability. He uh, told Fox News the reported friction was nonsense peddled by his opponents. He's married with two sons, studied in Africa, visited 75 countries, authored multiple books on North Korea and earned a Ph.D. in international affairs. A Marine Corps captain, Connor Lamb, is 33, On his, uh, according to his campaign website. The biggest issue facing the 18th Congressional District aren't partisan, he said. My only uh, bias is the one they taught us at the Marines, a basis for action, he said on his website. His congressional to-do list includes battling the nation's heroin epidemic, modern energy development, and creating jobs. In Pennsylvania, he's already worked towards ending the growing heroin crisis as an assistant U.S. attorney. He worked to make the Justice Department Pittsburgh office, a national leader in that fight. Lamb has uh, advocated for new leadership in the House and said he would not vote for Nancy Pelosi, the Democrat from California, as minority leader again, a politically astute move that could garner him the support of more moderate and independent voters, certainly younger voters. Most Democrats in the district may not dislike Pelosi per se, but would like to shake up the status quo. Um, He went on to say he uh, added that uh, the background as a veteran and U.S. attorney, as well as uh, his temperament, does uh, fit the uh, district more than other Democrats uh, that may have run. Lamb spoke uh, spoke out about gun control in the wake of the Parkland, Florida high school massacre. He said he doesn't believe additional gun laws are needed to prevent mass shootings. The broad agreement already is that we're not doing a good job keeping guns out of the hands of people with mental health conditions and uh, with criminals, uh, he said in a campaign event. And he told the Weekly Standard he would not uh, have voted for legislation that would have prohibited abortions after 20 weeks, adding he doesn't uh, label himself as pro-life because he it's a political term. Former Vice President Joe Biden uh, campaigned for Lamb uh, a week ahead of the election, comparing the candidates uh, to his late son, Beau, and praising him for his dedication to unions. Lamb will never, ever stop, will never, ever play a game, Biden said, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. This is the guy. This guy gets it. Well, Pennsylvania's 18th congressional district is located in the western part of the state near Pittsburgh. It includes parts of Allegheny uh, Green, um, Washington and Westmoreland counties. And it's made up of uh, many rural blue collar voters. There are actually more registered Democrats than Republicans in that district as a result of uh, strong organized labor in the area. Union workers are a key demographic for the special election, although Trump made inroads with them. Uh, the more than 80,000 members in the district uh, with his candidacy. So this is going to be an interesting race for a district that won't exist in a short time. I'm not sure what the timeline is, but that's been uh, the redistricting has taken place. Uh, but again, this may or may not be a bellwether, but lots of people are uh, are watching it. Now, I thought it was interesting that Hot Air um, said this of Lamb, who is uh, pro-gun or at least is not opposed to uh, the legal gun owner ownership and uh, tends toward being pro-life. 
Um, they asked the question, Lamb opposes any kind of assault weapon ban, a stance he reiterated in the aftermath of last month's Parkland school shooting. In one of his campaign ads, he aims an AR-15, which always seems like a bad idea to me, but he says he is personally anti-abortion rights, though he would oppose 20-week abortion ban legislation. He supports Trump tariffs. He will not back Nancy Pelosi for House Democratic leader. And on Tuesday, Lamb, a former Marine and federal prosecutor, might become the first Democrat to win this district in 15 years. Public polling shows the race as a toss-up. Many closely watching the race, including some Republicans, give Lamb the edge. I think you're really uh, starting to see how that can be a message that keeps us very competitive in some red seats. Representative Tim Ryan pointing to Lamb's focus on bread-and-butter economic issues as opposed to the usual political flashpoints. Ryan, an Ohio Democrat who unsuccessfully challenged Pelosi as leader, has spent the uh, aftermath of 2016 on a soapbox talking about the Democrats' need to do uh, what they need to do to win back the White House, um, white working-class voters that make up a large portion of this district. He uh, campaigned with Lamb on Thursday. So uh, kind of an interesting perspective on this uh, this face off. When Donald Trump visits uh, visited San Diego to examine uh, prototypes of the border wall, the president uh, landed in the largest city on the U.S.-Mexican border to formally oppose um, his plan. Well, the president uh, viewed eight potential prototypes in San Diego that could deliver on his paramount campaign promise to build a great, big, beautiful wall. Uh, if you don't have walls over here, you wouldn't uh, have a country, Trump said, acknowledging some of the existing border wall infrastructure. The state of California is begging us to build a wall. They don't talk about that. I'm not sure who is begging, um, but Trump blasted California's Democratic uh, Governor Jerry Brown when asked, uh, saying that he's uh, done a great, uh, a very poor job running California. It's out of control, Trump said, pointing to the mayor of Oakland, who issued a warning last month that immigration and customs enforcement could be conducting a raid in the area, saying that she felt it was her duty to warn those who might escape, even those uh, who were criminal. Meanwhile, the San Francisco spokesman for the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement resigned after the agency's recent Northern California sweep, saying he couldn't continue to do his job after Trump administration officials made false public statements about a key aspect of the operation. James Schwab told the uh, Chronicle on Monday that he was frustrated by reported uh, statements by officials, including U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, that roughly 800 undocumented immigrants escaped arrest because the Oakland mayor Libby Schaaf's February 24th warning to the public about the four-day operation issued the night before federal officers began staking out homes and knocking on doors. Schwab wanted the agency to correct the number, which he understood to be far lower and didn't want the... uh, to deflect media questions about it. I uh, quit because I didn't want to perpetuate misleading facts, Schwab said. 38 was hired in 2015 and resigned last week. I asked them to change the information. I told them that the information was wrong. They asked me to deflect, and I didn't agree with that. Then I took some time and I quit. Schwab said the statements about immigration, immigrants rather, evading arrests, which were widely quoted in uh, an array of media outlets, were misleading because we were not ever going to be able to capture one 100 percent of the targeted list of roughly 1,000 undocumented immigrants in Northern California. I didn't feel like fabricating the truth to defend ourselves against Schaaf's uh, actions was the way to uh, go about it, he said. We were never going to pick up that many people. The truth is you don't know how many people might have been picked up. They were looking for 1,000. They got about four, uh, 200, uh, 800 were left abroad. And again, you don't really know how many of that number might have been uh, captured had the warning not gone forward. What we do know is this San Francisco um, 
uh, spokesman, ICE uh, spokesman, quit the job um, saying that the 800 was an inflated number and wasn't willing to uh, to repeat it. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Mark Morano was our guest coming up. He's the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. It's published by Regnery. That's up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. President Trump has promised to stop spending U.S. dollars on global warming, and that has, to put it mildly, ruffled some feathers. With the federal bureaucracy, Al Gore, Bill Nye, the science guy, sort of, Hollywood elites, the Democratic Party, the United Nations, uh, scientists on the left, professors, all vociferously claim that our use of fossil fuels is destroying the climate. People on the other side of the debate find themselves shouted down discredited as ignorant deniers. But Mark Murano, he won't be scared into submission. In a fast-paced, politically incorrect tour of climate change, his brand new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, reveals the intricate web of, well, utter lies that uh, are woven around climate change. He gives voice, backed by statistics, real-life stories, incontrovertible evidence, to the millions of deplorable Americans skeptical about the multi-billion dollar climate change complex, whose claims have time and time again been proven wrong. If you think you know all about climate change, well, the politically incorrect guide to climate change will make you think twice. And uh, this uh, challenges us to think uh, perhaps more deeply and prepare us to respond uh, to those who would um, otherwise seek to silence. Mark Morano is a uh, founding editor of the award-winning website ClimateDepot.com, a project of the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, and a co-founder and star of the film Climate Hustle. He served as communications director for Senator James Inhofe and for Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. He has appeared on Fox News, CNN, CBS, MSNBC, BBC TV, ABC News, Al Jazeera, Sky News TV, RT, and PBS to debate climate change, among others. He joins us today to talk about his book, simply titled The Incorrect, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. Hey, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Happy to be here tonight. Thank you. Well, you have been described in a number of unflattering ways by uh, those uh, who oppose the work that you do. Um, Al Gore, uh, let's see, where's this list? Um, Oh, let's see. Rolling Stone magazine named you one of the planet's 17th climate killers in its December 2009 cover story. Um, let's see, BBC TV broadcast about uh, ClimateGate. You were also uh, referred to in a, uh, using a name that I cannot repeat here on air. What compels you to challenge the uh, what we are all led to believe is the consensus on uh, climate change uh, to be so vociferous and to insist that both sides of this, uh, this argument uh, be considered? Well, you know, I've been at this for years now. I actually started out as an environmentalist. And when I realized that I'd been essentially conned about the Amazon rainforest deforestation scare, it turns out it was the most intact forest. I actually did a documentary on that. It came out in the year 2000, and I profiled all the celebrities. That was the big environmental issue before global warming. So what happened was when global warming, I started studying that, I was very skeptical to begin with and grew even more skeptical. And in the book, uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, I actually lay out all the reasons in there why people should be skeptical, including 
the UN's own admission that climate policy has nothing to do with the environment or climate. And I realized all these scientists were being intimidated, bullied, careers destroyed. So I found, you know, essentially started working for the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. I was a researcher and the communication director, and it became a lightning rod, the, the office, because we did a report of 400 dissenting scientists. And since that time on, I became, this became sort of my main interest because some, I was trying to speak with and work with the scientists who were dissenting and give them a voice in the media. And that's what I've been trying to do. And that's what I hope this book does, because I profile scientists who used to work for the U.N., who turned against the U.N., even current U.N. lead authors, who talk about how it's a political, not scientific process when they issue these big U.N. climate reports. So, yes, I've been called evil personified and a bunch of other names uh, that you can't print, but it's been something that I wear as a badge of honor. Now, you describe yourself as an environmentalist then. You still describe yourself as an environmentalist, and the, the presumption is that if you oppose climate change, whatever that's supposed to mean today, um, that you, you cannot be an environmentalist because there's only one legitimate view that must be ascribed to in order to wear that moniker. Yes. In fact, you know, actually, back in the early 90s, Al Gore was saying nearly all scientists agreed. They, weren't even, they were trying to create a talking point years ago, decades ago, because they didn't want any dissent. They knew that dissent was fatal to their agenda. Um, and if, as you go forward here, they have to have conformity because once you start questioning, once you allow debate, the whole narrative falls apart. And so there's a whole chapter in the book on the United Nations scandal of climate gate. And I go through and I show how top United Nations scientists colluded with each other to craft a narrative, much like a political campaign would have a, you know, a narrative of the candidate uh, and, a, and a PR, and they didn't want anything getting in the way. So they threatened scientific journal editors not to publish papers that disagreed with the UN. They threatened and intimidated and bullied other scientists to be silent if they disagreed. And they crafted a narrative without even uh, the consent of the fellow scientists at the UN. And the way the UN process was set up, that the, the reports that they would issue, that the media would declare dire and end of the world. And as Brian Williams once said, you know, this is the, the life as we know it is at stake. The fundamental uh, things that keep life going are at stake. It turns out these scientific reports and quotes have to be done uh, line by line, reviewed by UN bureaucrats and politicians. And this is as far from a scientific process as you can imagine. So, uh, when you start presenting all that in the book, you realize this is a political, not scientific issue. You write that predictions are suddenly evidence, models are now data, that the climate change debate has morphed from focusing on actual data and evidence to misdirection based on climate model predictions. How, how big a departure yes. is that from what, what scientists would have accepted in the past? Well, what happens is you go through all the current data. First of all, we've had ice ages with carbon dioxide levels higher than today. There's no correlation with CO2 and temperature. In fact, it's the other way around. As temperature goes up, CO2 rises. And we're actually, geologically speaking, the Earth is in a carbon dioxide famine. So what they do is they'll say, despite the fact that sea levels aren't accelerating, polar bears are at record numbers, that the global temperatures have been in a basic standstill within the statistical margin of error for 20 plus, about 20 years. And despite the fact that you know, the hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, and, and the droughts have, are either on no trend or declining trend on climate climate timescales, they'll say it's worse than we thought. And you say, how could it be worse than we thought when every prediction you've made is failing? And they say, well, our prediction of 50 or 75 years from now is much worse than it was just a few years ago. So in other words, three years ago, they predicted doom in 2100. But now 
they'll come out this year and say the doom is even worse than we thought. So they'll say it's worse than we thought. We have to act. The future is now more dire. It's a misdirection. They, they're trying to get your mind off the fact that all their previous predictions are failing, that the current data is not alarming and actually quite the opposite. So they start making scarier and scarier predictions of the future. Now, isn't even the use of climate change something of an admission of failure? Because uh, first we were going to go into a global ice age and then we were going to global warming. Is climate change just an admission that we don't exactly know what's happening, but it's really bad? Yes. In fact, it started out, if you go back in the 1980, late in 89 and 88, when they started the real the formal start of the global warming campaign, that's when we had the UN climate panel form. They called it the greenhouse effect. And then it became global warming colloquially. And then they realized temperature wasn't going up. And they actually came up. First, they denied that there was a global warming standstill in temperature. Then they, and I document this in the book, they came up with 60-plus excuses. Everything from Chinese coal use, is the emissions are blocking out the sun, which is you know keeping the temperature from rising, to the oceans ate our global warming, to lower solar activity, and on and on. Then finally, they said, we can't make up any more excuses. We're going to go back. And they revised the data in both the surface and the land. And the land. So they got rid of the pause. They went back in their accounting books and wiped it out. So then they decided to focus on extreme weather. And I remember being at the UN Climate Summit in Bali, uh, in a, you know, a luxury resort with all the other – I was working for the U.S. Senate at the time. And this was a, you know, a five-star resort, luau's every night, oceanfront, hot tubs, swimming pools, a giant beach, luxury accommodations, and UN bureaucrats, delegates, everyone living it up. And I remember this was a conference. I had a debate with John McCain staffer. John McCain was a sponsor of the climate bill at the time. And they were arguing that the most effective way to argue global warming was to tie all bad weather to it. And I, we had a huge debate about that. And that's exactly what they did. In the last 10 years, it has been, you know, every time there's a hurricane, this hurricane has a name and it's global warming. California has a drought. This drought is from global warming. There's a hurricane, a flood, anything that happens, flood, drought, they blame it on global warming. I go in the book painstakingly and show that all the peer-reviewed science and historical data completely falls on face, but they change the name now because climate change can cover everything. Anything They basically say climate change will cause many bad things. And then whenever a bad thing happens, boom, we predicted it. We were right. So it's like going to a fortune teller on the boardwalk and they say, you'll have many, many setbacks in life. So every time a setback happens, you say, hey, that fortune teller predicted it. What a genius. And that's what they've done. Anything bad happens, they blame global warming. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. The book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. Mark Morano is my guest. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Mark Morano, he is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, a great resource for understanding uh, the issues, the debate, and why there are climate deniers and what they base that uh, uh, position on, what we, I would say, base that position on. Now, one of the things I mentioned earlier was this, uh, this, this consensus. UN scientists have said that, that there's a 97% consensus on global warming, and you suggest that was simply pulled from thin air. What are they referring to, and what's more uh, truthful? 
Yeah, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, Al Gore in the early 90s started saying all scientists agree. So then they came out with a couple studies claiming 97% of scientists and or studies supported that you know we were driving a climate catastrophe or you know, driving global warming. So in the book, I show that one of the studies that they claim wasn't even based on 97 scientists or 87 scientists. It was actually based on 77 scientists. So the claim of 97% wasn't even 97 scientists. And they were 77 anonymous scientists that they based this on. We don't know their names. We don't know their affiliation. And this is one of the ways they claimed that, you know, we had, there was this big consensus. Another way was another study that a UN lead author actually did an investigation into, and I detailed him in the book. And he actually says he investigated the 97% claim, and he said it was quite literally pulled from thin air. And that's in quotes. And this was a UN lead author admitting this and, and doing a study. And there have been peer-reviewed studies showing exactly that. What they do is they've issued this talking point of 97%, and the idea behind it is no one has to debate, argue, investigate. You just repeat that. If you remember the old TV commercials, you know, four out of five dentists recommend this mm-hmm. or you know, recommend this gum. The idea is you don't have you can just sound smart by saying, oh, well, all the dentists recommend it, all the scientists agree, and that is not the case at all. In the book, I detail how the consensus is made. It's kind of like making sausage, and I go through and show even these science bodies that represent tens of thousands of scientists, like the National Academy of Science, the American Meteorological Society, their two dozen governing board members issue statements in line with Al Gore and the United Nations. And the media reports it as the science group representing tens of thousands has issued a statement of global warming is real and man-made. And it turns out these statements aren't even, they're, they're, the actual scientists don't get a chance to vote on them. They're not even informed about them. In some cases, the, the governing board of two dozen or so members doesn't even vote on them. And these two dozen governing board members members are steeped in politics and funding of the organization. And it turns out that when they actually poll the member scientists of these groups, in the case of the American Meteorological Society, up to 75% are skeptical of the claims of the United Nations and Al Gore. So it's a classic case, and I go in great detail in the book because that's a very important point. This consensus claim whether it be 99%, 97%, or nearly all scientists, is a complete propaganda ploy. And I expose that. And again, there's like about over a thousand footnotes in this book, citations to peer-reviewed studies. Yeah, and it's absolutely fascinating. We're talking about the politically incorrect guide to climate change. Let's talk about climate policies and the impact they're having on the world's poor, something that uh, isn't often yes. talked about. Yes, in the book, I detail... Uh, about 1.1 billion people uh, don't have running water and electricity. This is an interesting fact because what, as we go forward, the United Nations almost wants to celebrate that. And I show that there's a thing called the Climate Fund, the UN Climate Fund. And I interviewed South African development activists in the book, and they explained that the climate money from the UN is going to go to basically the best third world uh, dictators and other leaders who are best able to keep people locked in poverty. In other words, the people without running water living at a subsistence level with high infant mortality, short life expectancy, are defined by the United Nations as living earth-friendly, and therefore their governments get money essentially to keep them poor because they're doing it the right way. I interviewed California Governor Jerry Brown in the book, and he actually says that the developing world, Africa, South America, Asia, can't emulate United States prosperity because we'd 
needs about another 15 to 20 Earths in order for them to do it. So you have white, wealthy Westerners telling people of color that they can't develop the way we did, that they can only develop using, quote, renewable energy, wind, solar, which make up a fraction of all energy, which isn't ready for prime time yet, no matter how much people talk about it endlessly about the promise and the hope and the vision of the future. So they're essentially condemning people to a life of poverty. And in the book, I have a little noticed event that Al Gore attended with uh, Bill Gates. And he actually said in the, in the, at the event that Africa is projected to have the biggest population increases in the future and that population is one of the biggest problems when it comes to global warming. So his solution was to have ubiquitous fertility management. In mm. the book, you will read Al Gore lamenting a white, wealthy Western politician and Al Gore lamenting that there are too many Africans projected in the future and therefore we need to have fertility management in order to keep their numbers down. Now, any other politician, if you were not a man of the left or the environmental left in particular, could not get away with that kind of uh, you know, implication. And yet he does, which is highly offensive to an African-American woman such as myself. Let's talk about the, the Paris Climate Accord um, that uh, the Trump administration was excoriated for uh, failing to support. Uh, what w- would this uh, accord uh, theoretically accomplish um, and, and why is it such a, an important element of this, this movement, this uh, climate change complex? It achieves three things. It achieves global governance, which is one of the stated goals of all these UN climate, the idea of a centralized, think of the EU except on steroids and affecting the entire globe. It affects wealth redistribution because that's its stated goal, and it's a central transformation. I actually quote the UN climate chief, who I did an exclusive interview last November with. She actually says, we seek a centralized transformation that will make life on planet Earth very different. And the UN Paris Agreement is a step toward this centralized transformation led by the United Nations. Most Americans aren't aware that that's their stated goal of these treaties and of their of their alleged climate solutions. And I also show in the book, if you go back to the 1970s, when we had the overpopulation scare, mm-hmm. you had the resource scarcity scare, all of those environmental scares of the past had one thing in common. The solutions were all the same. Central planning, global governance, limiting sovereignty, you know, limiting free, uh, free people's choices and central planning. This is what, so what they've, all they've really done is change the scare to global warming from overpopulation or the other scares that they've, we've had over the past few decades. And I have many boxes in the book that say different environmental scare, same solution. People will be blown away when they read about how we need wealth redistribution to solve these ecological crises of the 1970s, which turned out not to be an ecological crisis, which turned out technology, technology was the most unbelievable thing that people didn't foresee. From 1970 to now, we've had radical increases in economic growth, in population, and yet we've had unbelievable improvements in clean air, clean water, in the industrialized world. All through technology, better management, and in the developed world, we find where they don't have this explosion of fossil fuels and and technology and development, you find the filthiest places in terms of people are cooking, burning dung and wood in their huts, and they're breathing in horrible air quality. They're using their rivers as open sewers. They're filthy. Their children die young. They don't have modern dentistry. They don't have modern hospitals. So fossil fuels, we find out, actually clean up the environment. And that's where, and then you start arguing on the margins. In other words, you know, the United States has very clean air, comparatively speaking, to where we were 30, 40 years ago. Well, the book is designed to provide uh, us with the facts you need to understand and resist 
political agenda that has no real basis in science. We're talking about the Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, an excellent resource. You should have it in your library. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it very much. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Seven minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we're going to talk with John Malcolm. He's vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government, the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and a senior legal fellow. We're going to talk about the planned walkout tomorrow of uh, students uh, all across the country uh, to commemorate the 17 lives that were lost in Parkland, Florida on February the 14th. And what Congress is doing in considering how to respond. We're also going to talk with Timothy Dosher, who is an associate director of uh, coalition relations at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Economic Freedom. We'll look at the uh, the economic boost we are currently experiencing and the tariffs and how the two, well, conflict with one another in terms of economic growth. We'll talk with Timothy Dosher later this hour as well. Well, Senator Mike Lee has introduced a religious freedom bill that's designed to protect Americans who believe in traditional marriage from punishment by the government. Now, what an individual or organization believes about the traditional definition of marriage is not and should never be, he suggests, a part of a government decision-making process when distributing licenses, accreditations, or grants. He was uh, uh, providing a a statement. He's a Republican out of uh, Utah, by the way. The newly introduced version is different from the original version introduced in 2015 in that it also includes protections for those who support any federal legal definition of marriage between two people, including same-sex marriage. Well, Lee says his bill, reintroduced um, on Thursday, would help protect Americans from being penalized for their religious beliefs. Now, one would assume that the First Amendment would already uh, provide that protection, but as you know... there have been questions raised in recent uh, recent months, well, years, really. Uh, he says his uh, bill, reintroduced, would help uh, provide that protection. The First Amendment Defense Act, as it's called, simply ensures that this will always be true in America, that federal bureaucrats will never have the opportunity or the authority to require those who believe in the traditional definition of marriage to choose between their living in accordance with their uh, those beliefs and maintaining their occupation or their tax status, Lee said. Well, groups on the left have attacked the bill, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, Ian Thomas, Thomas, a legislative representative, said the bill would promote taxpayer-funded discrimination. Uh, the human rights campaign, Sarah Warbelow, uh, told CNN on the, uh, of the change to the legislation, it appears to be a false attempt or a failed attempt to make this legislation constitutional by making it seem they're not just targeting LGBTQ people. Mason Davis, CEO of Freedom for All Americans, which works to secure full non-discrimination protection for the LGBTQ people nationwide, was similarly negative. Emilio Cow, who's the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation, told the Daily Signal in an, inter- in an email, rather, that she believes the legislation would provide protection for those who believe in traditional marriage, as well as those who believe differently. Senator Lee has introduced much-needed legislation to protect the freedom to act according to the a view that marriage is between one man and one woman, even though the Supreme Court described this view as decent and honorable in Obergfell and Hodges, we have seen a wave of litigation against people who hold a belief that has been shared by people around the world for millennia. In a pluralistic society, there should be room for civil disagreement on marriage. Uh, We'll see what happens with the uh, legislation and if there's room for disagreement on 
uh, civil marriage. Well, ABC News' Joy Behar. She apologized for mocking uh, Vice President Mike Pence's Christian faith on Tuesday, ending a month of outcry stemming from the remarks she made that have been uh, called slander and anti-Christian bigotry. The vice president appeared on Fox News Channel's Hannity on Monday evening, urging Behar to apologize to the tens of millions of Americans who were equally offended during the conversation, and she obliged. Not uh, so much, I I, uh, suspect, from the vice president's urging as from the network. Um, Behar said on Tuesday's edition of The View, I think Vice President Pence is right. I was raised to respect everyone's religious faith, and I fell short of that. I sincerely apologize for what I said. Behar's controversial comments resulted in the Media Research Center launching a campaign to hold her accountable for spewing anti-Christian bigotry, as they put it after she said that communicating with Jesus is a mental illness during a February 13th episode of The View when discussing Pence's faith. Pence reportedly told Behar she should apologize to Christians during a private phone call she made to him, but the vice president doubled down on uh, that uh, very thing on the interview with uh, Hannity, and apparently The View co host took notice. I give Joy Behar a lot of credit. She picked up the phone. She called me. She was very sincere, excuse me, and she apologized. And one of the things my faith teaches me is grace. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Pence said on Sean, uh, speaking to Sean Hannity, I'm still encouraging her to use the uh, forum of that uh, program or some other public forum to apologize to tens of millions of Americans who were equally offended. The vice president concluded his uh, answer by saying that he hoped Behar and others on the airwaves will come to appreciate the meaning and, uh, if I could say it, the joy that comes from faith and respect that. Behar, a call to the vice president was uh, undisclosed until Disney CEO Bob Iger was asked about the controversy during last week's meeting with investors. The vice president didn't bring it up. Behar didn't mention it either. What do you say to the tens of millions of Christians, he was asked, and President Trump supporters, that your networks have a blatantly or have so blatantly offended and ascribed hateful labels? Shareholder Justin Danhoff asked Iger directly on Thursday at a shareholders meeting, specifically, do you think think, like Mrs. Hostin and Ms. Behar, that the Christian faith is akin to a dangerous mental illness. Well, Iger responded by saying, I don't know where I start. First of all, Joy Behar apologized to Vice President Pence directly. She made a call to him and apologized, which I thought was absolutely appropriate. Well, Iger, uh, he told the crowd that he was uh, glad to hear that Behar apologized because he takes exception to what she said. ABC insiders said executives initially wanted to keep the call between Behar and Pence, but Iger mentioned it while defending his company. The Media Research Center President Brent Bozell, he issued a statement declaring that Behar's private apology was not nearly enough and promised to continue his campaign against anti-Christian bigotry at the network. Bozell's watchdog group is presently running a campaign on behalf of aggrieved Christians urging that viewers contact view advertisers about Behar's hateful anti-Christian remarks. Well, upon learning of the apology, Bozell issued the following statement to Fox News. Our campaign against The View and Joy Behar has concluded. Even though it took a full month, Joy Behar did the right thing today to publicly apologize for her offensive remarks. I want to thank and congratulate the massive number of Americans who supported our effort and stood up to the anti-Christian bigotry with your calls, letters, and messages. Over 43,000 phone calls were placed to ABC and their advertisers demanding an apology. This clearly has taken a toll on ABC and has left a black mark on advertisers Clorox, Gerber, Oreo, and Home Advisor – 
who were utterly silent in reply to the uproar from their Christian consumers. While our campaign is over, let it be made clear, we will not hesitate to come after any TV personality or media figure who engages in this type of anti-Christian bigotry, nor will we spare any effort to denounce the sponsors of such hatred. Christians are fed up and aren't going to take it anymore. Hmm. Uh, Again, Joy Behar has uh, issued an apology, not just to the vice president directly, but on her program, The View, to the Christian community more broadly. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with John Malcolm. He's vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government, the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a senior legal fellow. Uh, In light of the uh, planned walkout tomorrow of students all across the country, um, the uh, Congress has been considering uh, several proposals mulling over what might be in the best interest of uh, protecting children in school. Now, part of the problem is... Congress, Washington, the federal government is not uh, primarily responsible for their safety, but providing states and localities with the tools they need to be effective is a role the federal government can play. We'll talk more about that with him in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the wake of the horrific events, the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, there are a number of proposals that are being uh, offered that I- involve federal grant programs uh, that uh, Congress is going to try to address in the uh, critical uh, period of addressing school safety and uh, gun violence there. Uh, John Malcolm, who's the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the uh, Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and senior legal fellow at Heritage, um, has written on the subject as to what Congress is pondering. And perhaps we'll have time to talk a little bit about some of the things the White House is also suggesting uh, to respond to those um, uh, those horrific events. Uh, and in its wake. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, George. Well, let's talk about what Congress is doing in response to this latest shooting. It certainly is not the first. It won't be the last. But it seems this time around there's been an effort under this administration and perhaps with the uh, level of student uh, involvement, there's a, there's an effort to do something uh, toward addressing some of the major concerns. What's Congress pondering? Well, they're pondering a lot of different uh, things. So one bill is referred to as the Fix NICS uh, Act that's floating around. NICS is, uh, is an acronym for the National Instant Background Check System, uh, and there are all kinds of problems with that, uh, with that system. Uh, and so people who should not be able to purchase or possess firearms often end up getting them. Uh, Congress is also considering, and the House will vote on this week, the Stop Violent School in, in Schools Act, uh, STOP stands for Students, Teachers, and Officers Preventing Violence in School. Uh, there's a House version of the bill that's been offered by Florida Congressman uh, John Richardson, who is himself a former sheriff, uh, and a Senate version that has been offered by Orrin Hatch of Utah. And that's going to provide uh, federal funds in the form of a grant to states and localities uh, that they can use for various evidence-based programs uh, designed to uh, come up with, the, with the solutions or at least uh, things to ameliorate the risk of violence in their states and localities, everything from uh, you know, training uh, teachers to carry concealed permits or, or paying for school guards or changing the infrastructure of schools, internal locks, cameras, uh, etc., uh, coming up with behavioral uh, you know, reaction teams, people who will be able to attuned to warning signs by potential students or outsiders in the community, 
um, that they might be on the verge of committing violent acts and taking appropriate action before that happens. It'll, it'll all depend on the individual situations based on the states and localities that apply for the grant. Now, you also write about the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee Chairman Lamar right. Alexander and the fact that they are um, they intend to introduce a proposal to provide states with more flexibility in using existing federal funds, federal education dollars, uh, to address school safety as well. Yeah, no, that's that's correct. And I know the Department of Justice, uh, for instance, in the Hatch Bill, uh, and I think also in the Richardson Bill, has said that there are existing programs within the Department of Justice that may help defray some of these uh, expenses. Uh, so, so look, there are a lot of uses to which these uh, funds are being put. They're all designed to make schools more effective. Uh, but if you don't have a safe learning environment, it's very, very difficult to educate uh, educate children. So perhaps some of these funds can be put to that uh, to that use as well. Now, the White House has released details on school safety, their agenda as well. Are they consistent with what? What we're seeing in Congress, or are they um, starkly different? And do you think these proposals, on total, are are going to be effective? Well, as you say, you're not going to be able to stop uh, all school violence. There are people who who you know use knives, and, and actually, someone tried a high school student tried to to detonate a bomb uh, in his school a couple of weeks ago after the Parkland. Uh, shooting. There's something inconsistent coming out of the White House. The White House is indicating that it supports the Stop Violence uh, in Schools Act. Uh, They've already asked the Department of Justice to try to regulate bump stocks, which convert semi-automatic weapons so that they act more functionally like fully automatic weapons. Uh, They're establishing a commission uh, to be headed up by Betsy DeVos to study other potentially long-range solutions. And they're also urging states to do what they can in terms of considering perhaps raging, raising the age in which one can buy long rifles. Uh, so I think that the president is doing that which he can do immediately, and he is calling on Congress to play its part uh, in areas that will require legislation or additional appropriations. And he's also urging states uh, to consider taking actions that apply you know, in their own jurisdiction. Now, when we have a horrific event that took place, uh, in like uh, the event in Florida, we immediately look to the federal government. But isn't it true that state and local partners have the primary responsibility for the physical security at schools across the country? And are we focusing our attention in the right place? Um, and do they have sufficient resource and authority uh, to do more to uh, try to protect students? Well, they certainly can do more. I mean, it's up to states uh, and locality about you know what kind of security they're going to have uh, in their schools. There are some some states that already permit uh, trained and qualified teachers to conceal carry. There are some schools that have a better infrastructure that pay for more armed uh, guards. Uh, there are certainly communities that have more money and resources devoted to mental health to try to get people the kind of treatment uh, that they so desperately need before they deteriorate so that they can perpetrate horrible acts uh, like this. And look, for every FBI uh, agent, there are many, many more Uh, state and local police officers. They are the boots on the ground, so to speak, uh, that are in the best position to do something about this. And with respect to what happened in Parkland, I mean, this horrific tragedy, there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, it really looks as if a lot of the teachers Mm -hmm. overlooked problems that this student was engaging in. Certainly the Broward County authorities didn't act in a timely manner on the many, many indications that they had that this guy was deteriorating and could be violent. And the FBI uh, didn't follow its protocols and had Day, they might have been able to intercept this guy before he wreaked mayhem, and, uh, mayhem on the Parkland School or the, you know, the, the Marjorie Stone, whatever the name of the school is. Yeah, yeah. School. 
Well, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has been uh, pressed to become the chairwoman of a commission that the White House has announced um, over the weekend uh, to consider more options of security, strengthening background checks, reforming mental health programs and so on. Um, Is this likely to be constructive from your perspective? And are we are um, members of Congress and for that matter, others looking at uh, things that will actually have an impact as opposed to things that sound good but may not uh, make any difference at all? Yeah, well, you know, I think whatever we're going to do, if we're going to talk about protecting our school children, we need to, need to be very clear-eyed about this and objectively analyze the evidence and, and do something that is likely to actually do good, to actually do some good as opposed to making us feel better. Uh, Betsy DeVos is, uh, is a serious person who I think will approach this uh, endeavor with integrity, uh, who will consult people of, of all political stripes with all sorts of different solutions, and we'll see how seriously her recommendations are and how they are uh, Treated. And of course, at the moment, uh, the focus is on uh, on schools, as it should be in light of this horrific uh, situation. But it's important to uh, keep in mind that for the most part, uh, our schools are uh, are safe uh, and that you're a lot more likely to have something happen in, in a, a poor neighborhood in an urban area than you are to have something happen in, in school. We have cultural problems and violence problems that, that plague our society. Uh, and, you know, starting with protecting our children and them safe when they go to school is a very, very good place to begin to tackle a very, very difficult problem. Yeah. And I appreciate your putting it into perspective because we do find our attention focused on a singular event and we uh, we uh, imagine that that's a, a situation that applies in every case, and it, it certainly does not. So I appreciate that. Right. Hey, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Georgie. My pleasure. Again, John Malcolm is uh, vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a senior legal fellow. As I mentioned, the education secretary has been charged with uh, chairing a commission that's going to look at uh, a variety of options. Everything is on the table, she said over the weekend. Um, Details for the panel have yet to be worked out, but she's going to unveil a robust plan regarding the commission's membership, scope of its work, and timeline in the days ahead. So that's a part of uh, the ongoing conversation that most of us hope will be constructive uh, in dealing with the potential violence in schools and, of course, Violence in the uh, in the country in general is an area of greater concern as well. So we'll uh, we'll follow that uh, commission once it has been named and seated. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with Timothy Timothy Dosher. He's associate director of coalition relations at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Economic Freedom. Uh, jobs are booming. The president has proposed a twenty five percent tariff on steel, a ten percent tariff on aluminum. And while um, uh, critics are suggesting that this is nothing more than a tax that's going to end up costing taxpayers and threatening the uh, uh, the booming economy, we're going to look at uh, what a tariff is and why it and whether or not I should say there's been any evidence that it could, in fact, contribute to uh, the economy in more positive ways. Timothy Dosher up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Bureau of Labor Statistics delivered some pretty good economic news on Friday. They announced that the economy has added 313,000 jobs in February. And this came in the Bureau's Employment Situation Summary that provides evidence, pretty strong evidence, to support the White House's pro-growth policies and encourage more of the same. Well, contrast that with the president's steel and aluminum tariffs, and that could uh, turn that good news um, rather sour 
rather quickly. Here to talk with us about that is Timothy Dosher. He's Associate Director of Coalition Relations at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Economic Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, let's start by talking about, uh, as you did in your Daily Signal column, the good news that we know at this point. Why should we be encouraged by the president's economic policies? Well, I mean, you can't argue with the numbers. 313,000 new jobs, as you said. That's over 800,000 new people in the workforce. That is a big deal, considering we had uh, labor force participation stagnation for the last almost 10 years or so. Uh, Many big sectors are adding jobs, including manufacturing, construction, and mining. Uh, And by the way, mining uh, jobs were losing before Trump was elected. So that's a big number as well. Uh, And and by the way, middle income earners, they're receiving their first pay raise in almost two decades. So this is a really, really good jobs report. Uh, Not to say that, you know, these, these things fluctuate each month, not to say that we're all everything's perfect now, but this is a very, very good sign. And it's moving in the right direction, which we ought to be encouraged by. Right. Absolutely. So the, the president's tax cuts, deregulation, uh, pro-growth policies, these are all uh, things that go on the side of the ledger. That's good news. That uh, spells prosperity for uh, U.S. workers. Talk a little bit about the tariffs, because I think a lot of people, we're hearing mixed reviews on them. Those who are in the manufacturing sector, for example, think this is a great idea. It's going to restore for them. Uh, the work that they had done historically. But for others, they suggest inflation is likely to occur. This is really a tax is going to cost us all more. First of all, let's talk about what the tariffs are on aluminum and steel and how they're likely to impact the economy. Well, sure. The uh, tariffs that have been proposed so far by the White House, 25 percent on imported steel and 10 percent uh, on imported aluminum. And now remember this. I'm going to say this three times so we get it. <laughs> Tariff is tax. Tariff is tax. Tariff is tax. And that tax is directly on consumers. Uh, we have an industry here uh, that, that, that steel industry, using industries, employs 17 million Americans in sectors ranging from automotive manufacturing to construction. And by the way, the construction numbers that were added in the jobs report, 61,000 new jobs. So that's a big one. Uh, And we saw that when steel tariffs were imposed in 2002 for a very short period, 200,000 Americans lost their job. So it is a big, big deal uh, for for all respects. I mean, if if these tariffs go into effect, I read a report today that consumers will be paying an additional $300 per vehicle that are brought in uh, from foreign uh, countries and U.S. showrooms. So so this does have real, real uh, effects more so than uh, are being reported. Now, what does the president intend to do by imposing these tariffs to discourage the uh, import of uh, foreign steel, uh, to use it as a negotiating tool? What ultimately is his goal and what does he think this is going to accomplish that's in, uh, in the American people's interest? Well, we think that this is, a, this is definitely a, a tactic to get a better position in NAFTA. Uh, negotiations. That's why we, we've seen a uh, now a carve-out issued for Canada and Mexico, who are our friends, and we do uh, a lot of trading with them. Um, I think that this this was a uh, also partly uh, in in uh, Trump's uh, desire to, uh, like he says, make America great again. That is definitely his passion. He says that over and over again. Uh, however, it might be just a little bit misguided given the numbers that we see and, and the reports that we read on what this actually does mean uh, for Americans. Uh, so that, that's, that's kind of how I would, would see it as, um, is maybe part strategy, but also part ideology. 
Is there any example in America historically where tariffs have been imposed and it has uh, resulted in uh, a growth in the U.S.? <laughs> Not that I can think of. Now, they're saying that this is going to bring back tens of thousands of jobs um, in, 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 in steel, um, but we see hundreds of thousands of jobs being lost. So you have to do the math. Do you want to build up one industry and hurt others or, or – do you want to just stick with what we know works, which is what the point I made in, in, in the piece was, was, was we know what's working. We cut taxes. We deregulate. We do all of these great things and propose a great small business confidence uh, that we haven't seen in, in you know, a decade. And, and why would we want to risk pumping the brakes? We should be stepping on the gas with policies we know work. So as the president has announced um, these tariffs thus far, when do they – uh, begin to apply to uh, imports of steel. I think we're still waiting on that right now, um, and and so that thing that and that's all part of the uh, negotiation tactic. I think he's making, uh, but but we want to we 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 want to make sure this just doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, so that's that's what we're trying to do here. Just forget the tariffs. For, forget them. Stick with what works right now. Uh, don't let's not punish our friends around the world. Let's not try and um, hurt our job. Um, Let's dig in and let's continue to grow this economy. I know there's a Republican lawmaker, and I apologize that I can't remember his name, but he's introduced uh, legislation or intends to that would wrest the power from the executive and back into the hands of Congress to decide whether or not tariffs were were to be imposed. Is that an effort that's likely to have any traction in this, uh, this ongoing debate? Well, we'll have to see about that. They, their, their argument is that they have uh, authority under Section 232 to do this for national security purposes. Uh, I don't really see that as a compelling reason to do this. Um, I don't see how tariffs really do protect uh, the men and women of, uh, and, 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 and uh, um, workers in the United States. Um, I, I see it as costing them a job. So um, in, in terms of that, I'm, I'm not sure how that would pan out, but I do know that the, the White House um, is prepared to act under their authority to do this under Section 232. Well, we'll continue to follow what uh, actually happens next, and I appreciate your helping us to better understand what's being proposed in view of the economic um, boom that we've seen in the last uh, short while. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Timothy Dosher is an associate director of uh, coalition relations at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Economic Freedom. In his column for the Daily Signal, he points out that uh, uh, in this uh, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics employment situation summary, they point out that, um, let's see, uh, the job boost that we were referencing, the unemployment rate remained at a low 4.1 percent, the lowest since 2000. Uh, The crucial construction, manufacturing and mining sectors that he made reference to have uh, improved. Civilian labor force rose by over $800,000. They announced that it had uh, revised employment numbers from December and January to show that 54,000 more jobs had been added than previously reported. And that means that over the last three months, the economy is averaging 242,000 jobs created. Nearly 3 million jobs have been added since President Trump took office. Uh, Finally, the U.S. saw gains in sectors that the president has specifically targeted, including construction, manufacturing, mining, uh, which until uh, his election in 2016 were all losing jobs. Other main um, uh, major gains were in retail trade, about uh, 50,000 jobs added, professional and business services, about 50,000 added as well. And he draws a contrast between those accomplishments and the tariff that's been proposed by the uh, 
the president. And as he repeated here three times, tariffs are effectively a tax increase on average Americans, because if uh, steel and aluminum is imported into the country, the cost of that additional cost is going to be uh, passed on to consumers, uh, he's arguing in the piece and certainly in our conversation just a moment ago. We'll continue to uh, to follow what happens next, as the president has already said that he intends to impose a 25 percent tariff on steel, 10 percent on aluminum. And while the uh, details are being worked out, uh, that is likely to uh, to be the case uh, sooner rather than later. Now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. We'll talk about the uh, local students who are planning to join the National Gun Violence Walkout tomorrow. So if you're seeing lots of teenagers and young people uh, about, uh, that's why. We'll explain what that uh, effort is about here as well as elsewhere across the country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Earlier in the program, we talked with uh, John Malcolm about what Congress is doing in response to the events that uh, took the lives of 17 young people and students at Parkland, Florida. Well, at 10 a.m. Wednesday morning, tomorrow, thousands of students all across the nation are going to walk out of their classrooms and protest against gun violence. They're going to demonstrate for 17 minutes, one minute for every life that was lost on February 14th in the Parkland, Florida shooting. And teens here in Oregon and in Washington are planning to join. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said that he supports the student demonstrations in an open letter to students published on his website. And we hope parents are also uh, either approving or disapproving of their uh, sons and daughters participating. But he went on to write, my daughter was in kindergarten the same year as the shooting at Sandy Hook, Wheeler wrote. Uh, Now that she is 11, she will be looking to you as leaders and role models. It is you, students, who are leading the way to real national change. I applaud you. Well, at least they're making a statement. I'm not sure they're leading the way. But Wheeler said he's going to recess Wednesday's city council meeting for 17 minutes to support the efforts of the demonstrating students. Faith Danner is organizing the walkout at McNary High School in Kaiser. Uh, the Statesman Journal reports she remembers her school going into lockdown last November when police found graffiti on a Kaiser garage threatening a school shooting at McKay High School in Salem. She says it was scary. Uh, she hid in a classroom corner with her peers during that lockdown. He says it's not a fear you can you should have. I don't want kids to have that fear in the future. And that's not fear people have in other countries with better gun laws. Well, That may or may not be true, but she said uh, she's heard from a lot of students who are also interested in participating in the National March for Our Lives protests on the 24th. Uh, We're on the uh, we're the ones rather affected, she said, and we're speaking out uh, before others can speak uh, for us. The Salem Kaiser School District, like many in Portland metro area, are supporting students rights to protest, but have informed families that teachers will be taking attendance before and after. So students can't uh, take this if they're participating as simply a day off. Students will receive an unexcused absence if they miss any time outside of the protest. Well, officials said the staff will supervise any student who participates and the day's lessons will continue in the classroom for students who do not. Portland Public School Superintendent Guadalupe Guerrera says in a message to parents that she expects staff leaders at school to aid in a protest that can happen in different ways. This could take the form of students and staff joining hands in a circle on the playground, families joining their students for a peaceful walk around the school grounds or some other activity. School employees themselves may not condone or participate in a walkout, he went on to say. 
At Evergreen Public School in Clark County, Superintendent John uh, Stetch uh, sent a letter to parents saying a 17-minute silent walkout can be viewed as a learning opportunity for informed and motivated students to discuss intent, method, and overall impact, as well as the exploration of what other actions could be taken in place of or in addition to a walkout. He added that the district's top concern is to maintain a safe and secure learning environment for all. The announcement to parents from the Beaverton schools about absences was very succinct, saying school attendance will be taken before and after the events. Students may not leave campus, must follow school protocols. Should they choose otherwise, they will be unsupervised and unexcused. The North Clackamas School District also sent a clear message to students and parents. While this demonstration is not a district-sponsored event, we recognize the rights of students. The Supreme Court has affirmed students have a right to freedom of expression and a peaceful walkout conforms to this right. Additionally, NCSD, which is North Clackamas School District Board policy allows for peaceful student demonstrations on district property under certain conditions, including demonstrations must be scheduled in advance and have a crowd control plan. The demonstration must not disrupt the orderly operation of the school schools. Demonstrations must not threaten the safety of students, staff, or create a hazard to district property. So students will um, take 17 minutes. Many will just simply step away from their classroom in a common area. Some schools have prescribed how that might be done. Uh, But for 17 minutes, remembering every one of the 17 individuals whose lives were taken tragically in that shooting in Parkland, Florida. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Mark Hancock, who is the CEO of Trail Life USA. It's an alternative to the Boy Scouts. And we're going to uh, talk with him about why families have opted for uh, this option as opposed to the Boy Scouts of America as we know, we've seen some significant changes over the years in terms of its leadership style and core values. Even the oath that's taken has been altered. And uh, we just received earlier in the day, in fact, a, an invitation to a similar organization for girls. They're not related. And it just happened that uh, these uh, offers coincided. We're working on trying to arrange a conversation with someone from that organization as well uh, to explore what families are, are doing uh, if they can no longer conform to Uh, the outline of uh, Boy Scouts of America as it has uh, changed over the recent recent, uh, weeks and months. We're also going to uh, host our World Concern Radiothon on Thursday. And it's an opportunity for us to focus in on an event that's taking place that is devastating Somalia. I know when you think of famine and drought and Somalia, they just seem to go together. I recently finished the book by Nick Ripkin, Ripkin rather, uh, is titled The Insanity of, and I was taken aback a little by the title, but I was recommended the book by um, uh, Phyllis Bennett from Western Seminary as I was invited to speak to a group of women on persecution and where God is in the midst of it all and why he permits it. And Nick Ripkin, which is a pseudonym, uh, he spent a considerable amount of time, I believe five or six years, perhaps longer, in Somalia working. And this was some years ago, and it was such a devastating experience for him. It was such an overwhelming uh, tragedy there that he began to question uh, not just the sovereignty of God, but the goodness of God, his capacity, his concern over the people there. And the book is really fascinating as it begins there and moves on to how his uh, faith and confidence was restored. But he spends considerable time writing about uh, Somalia. And sadly, uh, things have not improved dramatically since then. And we're going to focus on an area of the world that has suffered in tremendous ways. And that 
um, famine and drought is encroaching even further that threatens to um, revisit the, the level of tragedy that we've seen in the past. I know the temptation might be to simply say it's, you know, it's, it's too much. Um, can anything good come out of Somalia? Can any, anything good be done there to make a difference? Well, the good news is, yes, it can. And World Concern has been working on the ground there for a number of years. They're doing good work. Uh, we may not be able to solve all of what's happening in Somalia, but you and I can make a difference in the lives of some individuals, some families, perhaps some communities. And that's going to be our focus on uh, the program on Thursday. So I would encourage you to listen into the station. If you can't listen during this program from four to six throughout the day, you're going to hear uh, stories from David Harms uh, and others here at the uh, studios of KPDQ as we share the plight, particularly of children um, who are suffering uh, through this latest drought and famine. So that's uh, coming up on Thursday. And um, after Thursday, I'm looking forward to taking a deep breath and uh, focusing on some of the lighter side of the news because it can be very, um, it can be very difficult uh, as you focus on the struggles of of others. And it's right that we do so, uh, but we're going to step away from that on Friday, and we'll look forward uh, to doing that. But I hope you won't look away on Thursday and simply decide it's it's not uh, it's not for me because as we'll be talking about the uh, the struggles in Somalia. On Thursday, here from 4 to 6, but on KPDQ throughout the day, there are people at the other end of that conversation whose lives are being impacted in dramatic and devastating ways that um, we need to be mindful of. So, again, that's coming up on uh, on Thursday. All right. Well, I guess we are just about out of time. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing. Again, tomorrow we'll talk with uh, Mark Hancock, CEO of Trail Life USA. We'll also be talking, I thought maybe I'd have, um, I guess I don't still have the information on my computer screen, uh, for the uh, girls organization that's very similar uh, to this one. It's an alternative to Girl Scouts. Uh, I know there are parents who are uh, increasingly concerned about some of the curriculum within Girl Scouts. So anyway, we're going to talk about these two alternatives, and that will be uh, on tomorrow's program. Uh, also, we're working on, and I'm not sure we'll pull it off tomorrow. It might be Thursday, but I uh, have a friend who uh, shares her testimony. She uh, was in the uh, the gay lifestyle. She was a transgender for a period of time. She uh, tells her story in a very dramatic way. We're going to share that with you. That's either going to be in the 5 o'clock hour tomorrow or on Thursday. Uh, and we'll let you know, of course, uh, tomorrow. But uh, I should say Friday because Thursday's the Radiothon. Uh, we're going to try to put that together um, for tomorrow's program as well. So listen up for that. Hey, thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.